Welcome to As Word Spreads. 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 Welcome to our podcast, As Word Spreads. So, my name's Dylan. I'm a former youth in care, and my experience in the system was terrifying and typical. And I'm passionate about making change in the child welfare sector, and I do that through movement building and community organizing and advocacy and recording podcasts. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about transitioning to adulthood. And for youth from care, that means something different. So we're looking at the experiences that us as former foster kids, as people from a variety of different government and out-of-care placements, enter the independent world in different ways than our out-of-care peers. And we're here to tell a narrative that challenges people's assumptions about what it means to be a youth from care. So today, I'm going to ask our lovely guests about their experiences in the system, and hopefully we'll get to some really great conclusions about what the system can look like. Is that cool, folks? Yeah. Adol, welcome. Ashley, welcome. Um, Adol, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? My name is Adol. I'm almost 22, be 22 in about two months. Um, I've been in care since I was 18. Um, every opportunity and chance I get to better the care for youth, um, I will take because with how youth are treated and how horrible it is, it's really disgusting. My name is Ashley. I'm 26. I've aged out of care, but I was in care from the age of uh, eight months old. I'm very passionate about making sure future youth in care don't necessarily have to go through the struggles we've been through. I really enjoy being a part of the Adopted Families Association of British Columbia's Speak Out Youth Group, and also doing some work with the Federation of BC Youth and Care Networks. First, what was foster care like for you? Care for me was like I was... Care for me was like I was a person living on Hastings. I was treated horrible, but not my, based on decisions thus based on decisions that were not my own. If I could sum it up, I'd say that care felt like I was a prisoner. Choices were made for me, not with me. I was given rules and guidelines to follow, and if they weren't met, then I would lose privileges and stuff. And just the way I was treated felt more like warden and prisoner than parent and child. Foster care, as we know, is met with tons of challenges, and you folks both are experts in understanding what it looks like to go through those challenges. So uh, either of you, like which challenges in care stand out to you most? The discrimination, the low budget, and just the lack of communication. And when I say lack of communication, I mean like these social workers, one-to-one workers, people who work with the MCFD, they don't give enough information to these young people to help them for, go further in life. I've got eight other siblings aside from myself, and I only ever got to contact one of them because I lived with her. So all the other siblings I had no contact with, and I wasn't given access to a phone because they were long distance, so I wasn't allowed to make those phone calls. We didn't really have computers and cell phones then, so wasn't really allowed to text them and stuff. 
when it comes to things like programs like the youth agreement or the agreement with young adults or just in general life skills though they if you're lucky enough to be that young person you'll get told about programs that may help you but you won't be told the requirements so for like the agreement with young adults you have to be going to school or doing some kind of rehab program yeah and for those that don't know the agreements with young adults program is the primary way that the ministry markets support for youth that have turned 19 in the system whether they're on a youth agreement or a continuing custody order, that's the way that we get resources while we're trying to transition to independence in BC. Now, the sucky thing about this is that most people will only get told about, oh, you have to go to school full time. And being as a young person from care, like most young people, you know, we've come from some kind of bad situation. So there's a chance we have some kind of either mental health problem or disability or some kind of barrier that stops us. Now, if you have some, um, if you have a barrier and you're told you have to go to school full time, that's going to stress you out a lot more because dealing with your mental health or whatever kind of barrier it is, and then being told you have to go to school full time, that's just a lot of pressure. And it, I'm not sure about other young people, but for me to be told that, it felt like I was suffocating because I needed a place to live plus to be in a program that would provide me with some kind of money, but then have to go to school full time while dealing with my depression and type 1 diabetes. It was just way too much to handle for me. The Canadian economy is changing, and we've seen a big shift in the last couple of decades where families are starting to sh support their children way into their 20s. Maybe 30 years ago, 40 years ago, at 18 or 19, you were kicked off and you could find a job and maybe get a, a job working for manufacturing or some sort of really stable income and you could afford rent in your community. And in Canada now, the average family supports their child until like 25, 26, right? And that's not even considering all the other supports that are around beyond just living with your parents. Like, I don't know if this relates to either of you two, but like, I didn't have a number to call and I still hardly do. And that's so annoying. Like, one thing that I heard since I moved to BC is that Google is my parent. And that speaks to me, you know, like, it's really frustrating that I have to Google everything instead of calling my family about what happens when my landlord's a jerk, right? When I was getting close to aging out, I was either 17 or 18 and my social worker didn't even mention AYA to me. I had had a youth agreement prior to being 17, 18, and her first option said, she said to me, you can go on underage income assistance. That was her offer, and I was like, but I want to be on a youth agreement. I want to have this independent life, and she's like, well, you can do that on income assistance. And, and how much is income assistance in BC? Not a whole lot, like, I, not I, a whole lot. I think, because um, I'm on income assistance and persons with disability, I think, in, when I was on income assistance, I got maybe close to th maybe 320 bucks, and that's honestly not a lot in general, <laughs> even if you don't eat that much, because I mean, like, now I spend close to 300 bucks just on food, and, you know, I have to pay for a cell phone, because cell phones are, cell phones are now required if you want to get a job or to communicate with friends, and as much as a lot of people think friends you know aren't a priority especially when you're dealing with barriers friends are your main support 
a lot of young people now and even older people, you know, there's a lot of people who consider friends their their real family because for whatever reason, the their bloodline fa- family, they can't really count on. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about the family of choice, right? Have you folks heard of that? Yes. Yeah, it's like a, a really important model for me to know that because my family's not there for me, because the state took it away and my family had a really tough time while I was a kid, I rely on those around me. And if I was on income assistance and told that like you have to choose between a phone and food, it's like choosing between food and supports, supports food and community. And no one should have to make that decision. Or even choosing between food and a bus pass because mm-hmm. bus passes aren't always provided you have to have like a a certain circumstance to receive bus tickets. Um, so it's either you buy food and bus pass or food and cell phone. It's not enough to live on. And I've seen on social media, someone tried the welfare challenge and they had to cancel it because they were like, this is not livable. And it really isn't livable. It's not livable. Especially at a teenager. You can't expect a teenager to live on a couple hundred bucks. Definitely not. Like while we're learning to budget, we're also learning to be in poverty, right? And you know that 47% of youth from care turn 19 and go on to persons with disability? That's a lot. That's horrible. Yeah, like what is it for the average population? Like 2%? It's ridiculous. Like... So you folks have shared a lot about like what the Agreements with Young Adults program looks like and the problems that you have with social workers not letting you know about it in uh, a real way. What other challenges did the child welfare system show you? Like I've lost count of how many times I've moved physically um, in different cities as well in the lower mainland. I've been to a couple different cities and it's quite tolling. Even as an adult, like... It's not as bad, but it's still pretty bad. Just always feeling like my suitcase needs to be ready by the door. Just ready to go. Oh, you're being moved again. Or your garbage bags. Or your garbage bags, yeah. If you're not lucky enough for a suitcase, your garbage bag. Um, When I was in the foster home, when I was a teenager, I was moved almost like an emergency. She called me. My social worker called me middle of the day at school. I had my cell phone at the time. She calls me up and says get your shit, you're going. And I was like, where am I going? Oh, you're moving to Maple Ridge. And I was like, when? She's like, right now, my coworkers are on their way to pick you up. And then like 20 minutes later, they were there at the school, took me back to the foster home, packed my stuff, took me to Maple Ridge. And that was it. Just moved. I was only there for like two weeks and then I moved again. And then when I was on the youth agreement, I moved. And then I had to get off the youth agreement, so I moved. And I was on consistent, so I moved. It's tiring. And when you're, you know, a teenager, how are you supposed to move your stuff when we're not allowed to get licenses? So we don't have our own cars. And you're in school, right? <laughs> and like- we're still in school. So, like, we're trying to get an education. We're trying to get good grades. Because if you don't get good grades, then you have to go to school, get good grades, move, pack, all this other stuff. Plus, try and maintain your mental health. Like, how are you supposed to do that? All in one day. What happened to you when you moved? Like, did you lose time in school? Yeah. When I moved from 
Burnaby to Maple Ridge, I lost Lippo a couple days. I had to move and then they made me unpack and I wasn't allowed to have boxes in my room. I had to unpack, but they weren't willing to drive me to school. And I lived in Maple Ridge, so it was like I either had to take the bus or not go. So I opted for not going because I had to unpack. The group home that I was in was really nitpicky about their rules. So I was not allowed to have a dirty room and being moved on a Tuesday really took a toll on my week of school, having to unpack. So, When people express that they have some sort of um, mental health issue or they're going through something, a lot of people will just be like, oh, you need meds, you need to be medicated. But the problem is that's not the only thing they need. They need some sort of support. They need, rather it's counseling from a professional, a friend, a family. They need some kind of support because medication can only do so much. Medication is not the complete solution. I totally agree. And youth and care are totally over-medicated. We get transitioned to persons with disability at our 19th birthday because of this laundry list of diagnoses that we have, right? And we know that like when I came up through the system, I had so many different professionals like on my back at all times. And every time I would go through a crisis, I'd be assessed from somebody. And it's all those opportunities where the system says, this is what's wrong with you. And these are your problems. And no one's ever looking at what do you need to be successful? And what are the life challenges that you've had that have prohibited that so far, right? Like, it's not that hard to make youth successful, but we're clearly not doing it. So that's why we need to turn to youth and care for answers. My mom passed away due to cancer, and from the point where I found out she had cancer to a few years after she had passed away, I had bottled all that stuff up, and eventually I did explode. And if I had someone to talk to, if I wasn't taught as a kid that these um, feelings I was feeling weren't um, important, you know, maybe I would have come out a little better than... I am today. Mm -hmm. And I had my first counselor when I was eight. Like after my dad died when I was eight and he died of cancer, like that was when some intervention took place for me. And honestly, that's the reason why I'm okay. Like if I didn't have the counseling when I needed it and I, I really needed it then, I don't think I would be in a good place right now. And I had it. Yeah, you're lucky. I am. I have to agree with what you're saying because when I was a teenager, I was receiving mental health counseling, but I think I would have benefited better from receiving it as a younger child probably elementary years um and i think oftentimes youth in care are felt shamed for having any mental problem depression anxiety or even just their we're over medicated too or over medicated or the disabilities that they can't help it's something they're born with you know or you know Having physical health problems, it's always felt like we're shamed for it when it's not our fault. It's just, we need some help. And on that note, I'm wondering, like, what would have made your journey into adulthood easier than what it's been so far? One thing that I would definitely stress is that being a social worker, being a one-to-one worker, Yes, it's a job, but it's a lot more than that. You need to be passionate about it. It's not just some minimum wage job where you're just hoping to get through. You need to show that you actually care. Because if youth 
a lot of youth can tell when their workers don't really care about them. And, you know, it's like you expect us to do well, to make our lives better, to improve our situations, but yet you're not showing us that you care about our situation. And if someone who's supposed to be helping us um, improve our situation doesn't care, why should we? And, and passion matters, right? Yes. What does passion look like from a social worker? Passion looks like you don't treat the young person you're working with like it's just part of your job. Passion looks like you actually care about their situation. Passion looks like you actually care to help them. Yes, they're part of yes, they're they are part of your job, but you're not do, you're not you're not working with the young person just to get paid. You're working with these young people because you don't want to see young people in horrible situations. You want to see young people get a lot better in life than what we currently have. Passion looks like you're not there for the money. You're not there just to have something to do during your life. Passion looks like you're there because you want to help young people have a much better future than maybe what we've had in the past. Yeah, I agree. I believe children and youth in foster care should be treated like a member of your family, whether you're a social worker or a foster parent. Like, that's in the title, dude. Like, you're a foster parent. You're not just supposed to be, what, their director? Like, you're not a director of an orphanage. You're a foster parent. Take that role seriously. Like, it's foster care. So actually care about these human beings in your life. Like, social workers, you may have a dozen or so cases on your table, but that's a dozen lives in your hand. And how can you not care about these dozen lives? They're more than just a case number. They're human beings. We're human beings. For me, having somebody who's responsive, as you're saying, is so important. And it's really overlooked. And one of the reasons why is because social workers have huge caseloads. Like they have sometimes 40 youth they have to see regularly and if they don't they're not doing their job properly but that means that they just only have to pay attention to crises and check off a box of seeing them otherwise I, I talked to somebody today who told me that she came across a youth in care who hadn't been seen by her worker for a year and a half Wow. she was living in a foster home and it was a great home and she was like well equipped and she was a continuing custody order a CCO so it was like really permanent but a year and a half went by without her social worker ever checking up on her. You know? So being responsive is so important. Yeah. And Ashley, like, what would have made your journey better? I think what would have helped might have been having a voice in what happened to my life. Like, I understand the decision my grandmother made to put me in care as a teenager. But it would have been nice to have been given a chance to choose an opportunity for myself rather than being forced an opportunity. Like, I don't even call it an opportunity. Like, it was just, you're going there, and that was it. No ifs, ands, or buts. Like, the home was good for my sister, but it was not good for me. And it's similar to, like, the medication thing is not everything is good for you know, one person or every person. It's to each your own, right? And I really wish I would have had a, um, I really wish I would have had a voice in what happened. And I think I would have benefited a lot better. Um, 
I also think definitely more check-ins with my social worker. Those check-ins, even if it's just a phone call saying, hey, how are you? And if you're fine, that's fine. It's still so important just to hear that they're there saying, how are you? So having somebody check in is like important. Like it, it feels kind of silly that we're asking for this, right? It sure does sound silly. Like you don't think that just hearing someone say, how are you? is going to be so important to somebody, but it really is. When, when you're in care and you don't necessarily have your parents, your siblings, whatever, you're with this family who you don't really know. You have this worker who you don't really know. Just getting that one phone call could mean a lot to some people, if not all people. Why do you think that these changes haven't taken place? I feel that these changes haven't taken place because these workers don't think that they need to happen, despite how much we've pressured and how much we've tried to fight for these changes. There's a lot of these workers who don't think that they're important, that we're just asking for attention. and. When I say workers, I'm not just saying specific to social workers, one-to-one workers and stuff, because as much as they are to blame, it's also um, people above them. From what it feels like, they don't think that youth should be treated properly. We don't get treated like human beings. Doing, As we said earlier, doing the checkup, you know, that relates a little bit to one to someone thinking they don't have a voice. One person can make a lot a big difference no matter what your age no matter what you identify as doing similar to just checking in and asking hey how are you doing it may not seem like much but really just the fact that someone came and checked in on them even if they say oh i'm doing pretty bad you know it still makes a big difference because it shows that you know whatever the relationship may be um between those two people there's still someone checking in on them to make sure that you know you're still alive that you're you're still able to talk that you're still willing to talk and yeah yeah and for me i think maybe these workers maybe just don't realize how horrible it is they hear the stories but they're not the ones living through it a lot of the times youth and care pretty shut down towards their workers, foster parents, social workers, one-to-one workers. We don't really want to talk to them, which is why we go to these groups and have our peers to talk with. But perhaps these higher-ups and the social workers and whatnot, they probably don't realize how bad it is. And it kind of makes me reflect on that welfare challenge. We should make those workers live like us. Yeah, the, like a foster kid challenge yeah. for workers. Foster kid challenge. Yeah, yeah, get them to move all of their stuff into. We'll give them garbage, garbage bags. bags. Yeah, and 
I want to be really careful about not like vilifying social workers who are trying sometimes their real hardest. Like the ministry has a big problem with retention. So they have workers that work there for two years and get burnt out because of how tiring it is. And when you have somebody who's at the last six months of their burnout and they have kids on their caseload, like imagine the quality of care that goes into them. It's going to be like your experiences at all where there's going to be workers that are just not meeting the mark because they're exhausted every day. So how do we fix that, right? Like we need to make sure that there's enough social workers that there aren't dealing with cases that have 40 kids that they need to see regularly where people can actually invest the time and energy into relationships so that they do well. And nobody goes into social work to make money, right? Like it's a pretty poorly paid profession and there's a lot of opportunity for work in other fields that is more self selfish and will make them more money and be more comfortable and not have to worry about burning out. But they're choosing to do it because they care. So how can we take that attitude, which is coming from such a good place, and then harness that into making real impacts on people's lives? So there are so many things that I want to change about the child welfare system, and I, I'm sure that that's true for you. What are some of the things that you want to fix? To put it shortly, the biggest change I would do is to make sure that young people are treated like human beings because that's not how it is right now and to make sure that they get the full information they need to survive. Another big thing is for the foster homes to get random monthly visits and when a young person, when a foster kid tells you there's something bad going on in the foster home, maybe actually listen and maybe think maybe they're not just making this up to get attention. Maybe what they're saying is actually true. Ashley, what is the one thing you would change about the child welfare system? Something extremely important to me that I think I would change is having a whole lot more involvement with the youth. Like These are their lives in these workers' hands. It's their lives that these decisions are being made for. They need to be a part of those decisions. Within reason, of course, like a, a six-year-old can't make a whole lot of decisions for themselves because then they'd live with a pony. But, like, within reason, let these let these youth be a part of their own life, you know? Um, possibly also have more blood relative involvement rather than jumping to a foster home. Ask more family members if they're willing. Stuff like that. And I have to agree with the drop-in visits. Random visits and foster care is definitely important because when a planned visit is planned, foster parents have time to hide. And I wouldn't be a good organizer if I didn't take the opportunity to shout about the Fostering Change Communities Ask, which is for universal and comprehensive supports for youth leaving care that are guaranteed. And that gets us to the universal piece where no one should have to earn that support on their 19th birthday. We should just have the same supports that other Canadians get. And it should be comprehensive. So we've talked a lot about how the support is, you know, $1,000 a month. And that's not enough to live in the Lower Mainland. So that comprehensive support looks like enough money to live in our communities, to meet our needs until we're ready to transition out of care. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's all the time we have for today. And I, I'm so thankful to you folks for joining me in the studio at the Vancouver Inspiration Lab today. And I'm really looking forward to all of the opportunities we'll have to collaborate more on art and community building and change making in the child welfare sector. Awesome. I look forward to it also. Thank you, Dylan. 
that's all the time we have for today, everybody. We would like to take this time to thank you for listening to our podcast, As Word Spreads. If you found this podcast interesting, remember to tell your family and friends and other youth in and from care and youth adoptees. And Speak Out Youth would like to thank Dylan for helping us create this podcast. Hey, Ashley's. How do youth get involved in youth advocacy or fostering change? Go to fosteringchange.ca and learn about how you can join the youth advocacy team. Or by joining the Speak Out Youth group, which is a part of the Adopted Families Association of British Columbia. We get together about once a month, and we're a group of youth in and from foster care or adoptees from like 13 to 25. And we get together to talk about how we can help support and promote permanency and adoption.